This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was home crafted and recorded on November 2nd and 3rd. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle show. My name is Kim Jones and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. We had an election. Not a whole lot of people participated in it, but it was an election nonetheless. There were state constitutional amendments on the ballot, but Austinites were certainly far more engaged in the two city propositions on the ballot, especially Prop A, which would have put certain mandates on police hiring and funding. It was the hotly contested initiative willed into being by the conservative PAC Save Austin Now, and voters were not having it. For a more nuanced take on the election, I've asked staff writer Austin Sanders to hop on the show with us to talk about Prop A, police reaction to the election results, and everything else that's going on with APD. Hello, Austin. Hey, how are you, Kim? Thanks for having me on. I'm good. So this was an emphatic rejection of Prop A. What happened? Yeah, yeah. Humiliation, crushing defeat, landslide. I mean, it was a two to one margin that Save Austin now lost this election by. Like you said, it was just an emphatic rejection of at least the proposition, the plan itself, which to kind of remind listeners, like you said, would mandate this staffing ratio to police officers for every 1000 residents in the city, kind of permanently tying police staffing to population levels which is not really an accepted way of staffing police departments by any expert. And it would have required the city to hire anywhere from 300 to 900 police officers, depending on some other provisions in the ordinance, at a huge expense, somewhere close to $100 million a year on police spending. So yeah, voters just were not having that. I think it'll take some time to really suss out whether it was the proposition, which the no way on a campaign, the opposition to Prop A, they really framed around the fiscal irresponsibility of it all. You know, the cost, it would be an unfunded mandate, as in it would require the city to invest all this money without any way of paying for it. You know, either the city would have to raise property taxes or cut other city services. So we'll see if it's a rejection of that policy in itself or more broadly, a rejection of Save Austin Now. You know, they use deceptive tactics, misinformation in their petition signature gathering campaign that preceded the ballot measure and in the campaign. You know, they really tried to mislead voters in what the proposition would do and what it would cost. And so, you know, we at the Chronicle tried to kind of expose that and shine a light. So it'll be interesting to see in what steps Save Austin now does locally next, if voters will just kind of have rejected the brand or if it was this specific policy, this specific proposition that voters were just not having. Right, because Save Austin now was coming off a really big win from the summer's reinstatement of the public camping ban. So you kind of retroactively look back at that and wonder not because of what Save Austin now was standing for, but rather people just didn't want to see tents out on the city anymore. Yeah. And now when they had a less popular proposition, they just couldn't sell it. 
I'm glad you brought up the Prop B campaign from May, which the progressive coalition opposing that measure, they lost by about 15 percentage points. Whereas Tuesday in November, Save Austin Now on Prop A lost by 37 percentage points. So a pretty you know big difference in the margin of defeat there. And yeah, I think the issues and the campaigns were totally different, right? Like you said, Prop B, which again resulted in a renewed prohibition on public camping throughout the city, it drew a pretty wide range of voters from across the political spectrum. You know, people who would probably consider themselves liberal went and voted to ban public camping, right? And it seems like that was not really the case in Prop A. The liberal, more centrist voters were just not showing up to vote for the proposition the way that they did for Prop B. I think the campaigns were a lot different in the Prop B opposition. They were outraised in terms of fundraising by about a 10 to 1 margin. It was not even close in terms of fundraising. The political establishment, the Democratic progressive establishment, was not really as vocal as kind of full-throated pushing back against Prop B the way that it was against Prop A. The No Way on A campaign, they really repeated that they represented the largest coalition of political groups in Austin history, right? It was, you know, more than 100 groups ranging from environmental groups, the Libertarian Party, the Austin Justice Coalition, you know, this really wide range of political voices came together to defeat this measure. So yeah, I think the issue on the ballot and in front of, of voters was much different in Prop A versus Prop B. And the way that the campaigns were run was a lot different. I didn't mention, but in Prop A, the fundraising was you know, pretty equal. They were about on par with how much each campaign raised. So just a much different picture compared to May, compared to November. So we're taping this the morning after the election. So it's all very fresh. We haven't heard a ton of comment, but Save Austin now, if our listeners don't know, co-founded by the chair of the Travis County GOP party. What is he saying? What is Save Austin now saying is their next target? I assume they're not just rolling over and saying, okay, we're going to stop sticking our nose in Austin politics. Right, right. What's the agenda now? Do we know? Yeah, I think it's still early days. I'll note that in October, the statesman, the Daily, did a kind of a big story profile on Makoviak, and he told him if Prop A loses, he's going to consider moving out of the city. Based on remarks he gave at the kind of unfortunately named Victory Party, say Boston Now's Victory Party last night, he kind of gave some remarks after it was clear Prop A was losing that indicated otherwise, right? He said, you know, we're going to come back. We're going to double down on city council races, which in 2022, the mayor will be up for election and the current mayor, Steve Adler, is term limited, so he won't be on the ballot. It'll be an open seat. So conservatives, Republicans will be looking to mount an offensive there. He also mentioned uh, City Council District 4, Northeast Austin, currently represented by Greg Kassar. It may be soon vacant. Greg Kassar announced that he's exploring a run for the U.S. Congress in the district currently occupied by Representative Lloyd Doggett. He's going to run for a new district, so they wouldn't be running against each other. But anyway, if Kassar formally announces a bid for that seat, that congressional seat, 
he has to step down from city council and there would likely be a special election. And Makoviak last night said they would be putting up a candidate in that race. Again, like you said, it's still early, just the day after. Certainly, Makoviak is responding, answering to donors. He took in a lot of money for some really wealthy people and lost by a bunch. Had a huge, huge loss. So I'm sure he's kind of focused on explaining what went wrong. But based on his remarks last night at the party, he doesn't want to go anywhere. He wants to stay focused on these local races and try to put more conservatives in city government. I think the other question is, do they try another of these ballot measure elections and campaigns? Signature gatherers, that's how they got on the ballot in Prop B. That's what they did in Prop A. At the Chronicle, we've kind of calculated it cost about $150,000 to get enough signatures to get an issue on the ballot. Not a whole lot of money in political circles. So I would definitely expect them to take another crack at one of these citizen-led petition initiatives in the future. Well, I want to sort of pivot the conversation a little bit. Prop A, of course, was about police funding and was really just an obvious pushback to the ongoing calls for police reform that started in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And locally, you know, we had major local protests as well. We have a new police chief. Prop A was voted down. Let's do a temperature check. And I should point out in this week's issue of the Chronicle, you write about specifically APD sex crimes unit and the ongoing push for reform there and some positive, some signs of change that we've seen. So tell me, what are your thoughts right now and where we are with the call for police reform? Yeah. So Joseph Chacon was confirmed as APD's next chief. September 30th, he was serving for six months in an interim capacity as the chief. He's facing a lot of kind of cross pressures. The Austin Police Association, which of course backed Prop A, was a big supporter. They've kind of been going to war against the chief. They preferred one of the other three finalists that lost the chief job. They're really calling on him to produce a new staffing plan a way to fill these officer vacancies that the department is carrying to kind of make things easier on the officers now who are working a lot of overtime and and stretched thin. That's one area that he's facing pressures on. The other, which I wrote about, as you mentioned in this week's issue, is in how the department responds to and investigates sexual assaults. You know, this has been a focus of advocates for survivors of sexual assault for many years, especially in the past six or so, when a couple of big scandals came to light involving the police department. One was the mismanagement of the DNA crime lab, mishandling of rape kits that survivors submitted to these forensics exams, and APD was just kind of not properly taking care of them. So some were just kind of wasted away, grew mold on them, and were useless. The other scandal was the rate at which detectives were clearing cases, which basically means they're kind of closing out the case without securing an arrest or advocates say, in many cases, without the survivor's consent. You know, they weren't really wanting the case to be closed out. So these were big national scandals that APD fell under scrutiny for, and they brought a lot of heat against the department. Some survivors have engaged in a class action lawsuit against the city of Austin, in which former police chief Brian Manley and Art Acevedo are named defendants. So this is very much a current issue. September 30th, when Chacon was confirmed, 
He received a number of questions from council members about this very issue. Like I said, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him to really change the way the department responds to sexual assaults and investigates them. And I talked to a lot of advocates for this story, members of the sexual assault response team, which is kind of this body of community organizations and law enforcement that meets regularly to kind of improve the way the Austin community responds to sexual assaults in terms of supportive resources and the criminal justice side of things. And there is some signs of hope. One really big improvement was Kachina Clark, who is APD's Victim Services Division Manager. She's really well-respected within the survivor community. She's been at the Victim Services Division her whole career, more than two decades at APD. And she's seen as a really powerful voice for advocates. And they've really been pushing for her position for that victim services manager to be elevated to basically the equivalent of an assistant chief. She's a civilian employee, but she would be like one of the top executives in the department. Chacon has not done that. He says it's not really necessary, but what he has done is kind of given her more authority, given her more power. He's invited her to these executive level meetings where she can kind of voice concerns about policies affecting victims. She has direct access to the chief if she hears concerns from survivors or things that she notices on her own that she can advocate for. So that's kind of a big shift. Advocates of survivors are hoping it'll have a big impact. One thing that they're really hoping will change, though, is training for detectives within the sex crimes unit. There's not enough of it. It's not really formalized. So that's something that advocates are really hoping for to really change the way detectives interact with survivors of sexual assault. Well, Austin, you go into much greater detail in your feature this week. I really think our listeners can learn a lot by picking that up. It's on stands now. And I know you're going to keep tracking these attempts at culture change at APD for us. So Austin, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. We are going to take a quick break and then Mary Tuma is going to join us to talk about abortion rights in Texas. Don't go anywhere. the Austin Chronicle show on co-op community radio. My second guest today is one of the state's leading reproductive rights reporters, and I always look forward to seeing her. Mary Tuma, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Kim. I appreciate it. Well, Mary, the Texas legislature passed something called Senate Bill 8, which has resulted in a near total ban on abortion. Can you give our listeners sort of the thumbnail explanation of what has now become law in Texas? Yeah, Kim. So Senate Bill 8, it was a priority item for ultra-conservative Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and Governor Abbott. It was filed back in March and signed into law by Greg Abbott in May. And so what it does exactly is it bars abortion after embryonic cardiac activity can be detected, which is usually at six weeks. Anti-choice advocates 
erroneously debit a heartbeat bill, but make no mistake, that's medically incorrect. There's no fully formed heart at that point. So it's a very medically misleading term. And since it bars abortion after around six weeks, at least 80% of pregnant people in Texas don't realize they're pregnant this early on. So the law really does amount to a near total ban in what is the second largest state in the U.S. It's considered the most restrictive abortion ban essentially ever in a state since Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. And while there's some carve out for medical emergencies, it offers no exception at all for rape or incest survivors. And to date, it's been in effect for more than 60 days. So two months, this law has been in effect and barred abortion care, essentially most abortion care in the state. And it's also important to note, there's another component of this law that's really important to note. It makes it you know, even more problematic and insidious is how it's enforced. Other states have passed a similar six-week bans, but all of those laws have been blocked by the federal courts. And Texas, sort of seeing the writing on the wall, devised this private enforcement scheme to sort of evade a block by the federal court. So instead of allowing the state of Texas to enforce the law, like they've done with virtually every other Texas abortion law, they handed power to private citizens. So any private citizen anywhere in the United States can sue someone that aids or abets abortion care before six weeks, and they can be awarded a $10,000 bounty if they win in court. So it's a really novel and unprecedented legal scheme. It makes it harder to block legally. And so, yeah, you know, critics point to that as it makes the law even more problematic and difficult to block, as I said. So just like, let's really put a fine point on this. The Texas law is offering an incentive of $10,000 to a private citizen to sue, say, the Uber driver who takes a woman to an abortion care clinic. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. The Uber driver, rape and crisis counselors that recommend abortion care, clinic staff, even a friend or family member, you know, who Mm -hmm. loans some money to get an abortion or drives their sister or daughter to, to the clinic. It's a huge, hugely broad blanket of potential people that could be sued under this law. So there's certainly a chilling effect here. Yeah, I mean, it's really, I I cannot honestly get over how utterly bonkers it is. I mean, it really, yes. But I want us to get back to that in a minute, because as you pointed out, this near total abortion ban has been in effect for two months now, and we already are seeing the impacts of that. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. So yeah, two months. I mean, the law has devastated abortion care in the state of Texas. Like the impact cannot be overstated. You know, abortion seeking patients must find the resources to travel out of state for care or, you know, carry unwanted pregnancies to term against their will. Where are people going out of state? Right. Yeah. So those, and, you know, keep in mind those that can even afford the resources and get the sure. you know, research. So they're going to neighboring states like Oklahoma, Arkansas, Louisiana, and New Mexico. But that's, of course, straining capacity, you know, at the clinics in those states. And those states have like a fraction of the abortion clinics that Texas does. So 
as you can imagine, there's this ripple effect of the straining capacity in those clinics. And then that means longer wait times and longer times for appointments. And then abortion becomes further and further and further out of reach for people here in Texas. Have these neighboring states, I mean, obviously it's impacting the kind of health care that they can provide to their own citizens now. Anything else about the immediate impacts that we should know right now? Obviously, it's early days. Yeah, I mean, as Chronicle, as we reported just last week, there's been like recent research from the Texas Policy Evaluation Project that showed after SB8 went into effect, the number of abortions performed in Texas fell by half, which is the largest documented decrease of the procedure in recent Texas history. So that's more than what happened after HB2 which was a law that shuttered half the state's clinics before it was eventually struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's more than the fallout from last year's COVID-19 abortion ban, which lasted roughly one month. What that drop in abortions tells us, it doesn't mean that the need for abortion care isn't there. It means that It simply means that pregnant people are being forced to travel out of state or, again, carry those pregnancies to term against their will. And also, it's really important to note that, you know, as with all anti-abortion laws, this one disproportionately impacts the most vulnerable. So low-income women, women of color, undocumented residents, people living in rural areas, There was a legal brief from abortion providers filed recently, and they really painfully detailed some of the stories of abortion-seeking patients that were denied care in Texas, and it was very heartbreaking. They include sexual abuse survivors, undocumented patients, women suffering chronic disease and mental illness, and patients as young as 12 and 13 years old. Remember, this law does not exempt rape and incest survivors. So they detailed, you know, a patient, a young teen who came from Texas to Oklahoma after being raped and impregnated by her father. Unfortunately, the family member taking care of her lacked the guardianship forms to be able to consent to the abortion, and they had to turn her away. So, you know, even those that can make it out of state, some of them aren't even being able to access abortion. So really heartbreaking stories. Again, it can't be overstated how absolutely devastating this law has been to, you know, what should be considered a constitutional right. Well, Mary, I want us to sort of bring us up to what happened this week, which is that this came before the Supreme Court on Monday, if I remember correctly. Yes. And not necessarily for reasons people might think. Can you sort of explain, this is where things get a little complicated, I think. Right, right. That's a good point. Yeah, so there's been two legal challenges to this law, one from Texas abortion providers and one from the U.S. Department of Justice. So on Monday, the Supreme Court heard both cases, but they did not actually look at the constitutionality of the law. So we already know that it flies in the face of abortion rights precedent. It's pretty much blatantly unconstitutional. They were actually taking a look at the private enforcement mechanism I talked about earlier, that sort of vigilante provision that allows any private citizen to sue and whether, you know, that's basically okay. And they're also debating whether the U.S. government has the right to block the law. Is focusing on the private enforcement mechanism sort of a canny move because of the conservative makeup of the court? 
I'm curious why that, as opposed to the constitutionality, is what made it in front of them right now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the general consensus was that conservative justices like Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, who are very anti-abortion, actually lodged some very critical questions about this private enforcement mechanism because it sounded like they were worried that it could be a slippery slope, right? So a private enforcement mechanism that punishes abortion providers may be favorable to the right wing in this instance, but if other states can apply this private enforcement mechanism to, like, let's say, gun rights or things that, you know, the right wing favor, then it could be a slippery slope. And that's not something that I think they want. And, you know, that all being said, because they weren't talking about the constitutionality of the law, we didn't hear much about the impact on the ground and about the people actually suffering through this. It was all very procedural and matter of fact. And I think, you know, for people that have been watching this law closely and experiencing the impact, it was pretty unsettling. Unsettling in the sense that it was procedural versus the human impact? Yes, exactly, exactly. But on a positive note, you know, the fact that you have these conservative justices being skeptical and pushing back a little bit. Abortion providers and attorneys did say they were heartened by that and that made them hopeful that perhaps the Supreme Court would not uphold this law any longer. So that happened on Monday of this week. Where are we now in the process? What do we think is happening next? What are we waiting for? Right. So we're all just kind of bracing for a Supreme Court ruling that could come any day now. They could agree to an emergency block of the law. They could remand the case back down to federal court and let it play out there where it was before until it was kind of slowed down by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So we're just waiting and seeing. And in the meantime, the law is still in effect and causing massive harm. And also keep in mind that no matter how they rolled, Texas abortion rights is still hanging in the balance because the Supreme Court is supposed to hear a challenge to a 15-week ban out of Mississippi on December 1st, and observers really are worried that they're going to severely chip at Roe v. Wade in that case. And if they do, if they really succeed in overturning Roe v. Wade in that Mississippi case, Texas has a trigger law, what they call a trigger law, that they passed this legislative session in addition to SB 8, that would completely bar abortion care. So, you know, there's a lot more to brace for and keep a vigilant eye on. Well, I I appreciate that you've been keeping that eye out for the Chronicle, and I'm sure our listeners have appreciated you succinctly explaining what's going on. And I do want to point out that we are taping this show Thursday, November 4th at about four o'clock, and it won't air for another 26 hours. So a lot can change between now and then. But once again, Mary, I I do want to thank you for really explaining what is a a complex and disheartening situation for Texans. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on, Kimberly. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, that is another episode of the Austin Chronicle show in the can. Our guests today were Austin Sanders and Mary Tuma. The show was engineered by Bob Daly and Andrew Solon. And Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson wrote our theme music. We will see you next week. Thank you.